Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Correspondent John Evans. Hello, gentlemen. It was a very exciting week last week uh, on all kinds of fronts. Uh, so picking topics to discuss today is not easy. However, the biggest uh, the biggest news and the biggest um, event that took place uh, over the weekend, starting uh, well, it's been brewing for quite some time, but starting with protests on Friday was uh, a proposal for a new law to be put in place in Chile that would dramatically curb the production of salmon, uh, 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 farm salmon in the country. Now, there's always opposition to salmon farming in every major country where it's produced. Um, there are oftentimes when there's regulations that get proposed, uh, there can be campaigns, social media campaigns, different kinds of efforts. And it is usually very, very common that companies will point to the potential for job losses in rural coastal communities as a result of some of these um, some of these uh, regulations and, and laws. We've seen that many, many times. But this turned out to be very, very, very different um, than the way that some of the other uh, uh, the other uh, opposition efforts to salmon farming uh, go. John, just catch us up to speed of where we are and what happened last week and why was it different from uh, from some of the other things we've seen in the salmon farming sector? Uh, just to put into context first, Drew, uh, Chile produces uh, just over a million metric tons of uh, salmon annually, including uh, coho, salmonids and uh, uh, coho and uh, trout. Um, and uh, this new law would have cut that potentially in half, although it may not have happened straight away. It may have gradually happened as, as salmon concessions in protected areas were phased out. And, and against that, um, as was pointed out by people in the uh, Chilean salmon industry, uh, the Norwegian industry, by contrast, has uh, unveiled plans to uh, increase its production fivefold by 2050. So that's that's one thing. But um, yes, I mean, as you say, this has been known about in Chile, but uh, less so in, in the public eye. As um, Sam and Chile said last week, they'd um, tried to go through official channels uh, rather than having a sort of uh, high publicity uh, media campaign about this and uh, making a lot of noise about it. But uh, it all came to a head in the middle of last week when the government said it wouldn't back down on its plans and it would remove text from the aquaculture and fisheries law which meant that um, hundreds of uh, salmon production concessions in protected areas um, would gradually be phased out it appeared so yes that's that's where it got to um, I mean I've just put Ryan Gasorja I'm not going to give too much away about at the moment, but I've just I've just finished it and it talks about how the um, uh, protests came together at short notice uh, uh, last week. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that was kind of the most surprising thing is, John, you and I were talking when kind of the first social media 
efforts became visible on some of the uh, on some of the platforms, LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter. And there was a, a sense, at least when I saw it, I thought, well, this is too little too late for any kind of organization to, to oppose this law. Um, because there was an emergency meeting uh, called on Friday, is there a sense that this caught the, uh, the uh, Boric government by surprise? Uh, were these protests expected? I mean, it, it really seemed like um, they were people came out more than were uh, than was uh, expected. They may have come out more than expected, but it, you know, uh, President Boric is in power at the moment. But he wasn't in power when the the the, the law, um, you know, the, the law got the the. The makings of the law got underway. It's been in the making for 11 years, so well before his time. Um, so, yeah, there may have been a, a strong groundswell of, uh, of feeling last week come to a head, but the, it was ahead of Monday's vote of a, of a joint committee of lawmakers, of 10 uh, lawmakers, senators, made up of senators and uh, members of Congress. And, um, yes, I mean... Uh, it's some people in the industry say it's difficult to tell how much of an influence this may have had on them. Um, but uh, it, it was a knife edge vote. They voted three times consecutively. Uh, it was tied at five all. If the vote had been approved, it would have gone forward for, to the Congress for a rubber stamping. So, yes, I mean, mm. it, it was a very tense atmosphere. And... Yeah, it, it certainly, you know, with the industry's future hanging in the balance, um, it was pretty uh, momentous. So, I mean, we say the future hanging in the balance. So, I mean, what now is the expectation with some, some of the sources in the Chilean salmon industry that you've talked to is what then is the next step? When is When do they face kind of a, a, a similar showdown? Um, on this uh, on this law again, or this proposal again? I spoke to one uh, high-profile source in the industry, senior executive in the industry, and he said he didn't expect it would happen this year, but next year when they debate the new aquaculture law, it could raise its head again. So, uh, you know, this time next year or whenever in 2024, we could be seeing something of of a repeat of that because the um, the, the uh, proponents of um, banning salmon production in, in protected areas are most likely uh, to dig in and um, those who are against a, a, a ban uh, likewise. So, I mean, but, but the same kind of opposition is likely to, to also – uh, raise its head as well, right? I mean, the the local communities. I mean, this was, um, as you just mentioned, this was quite different in that it wasn't uh, necessarily uh, an industry organized. When I when I say that, I mean it wasn't a company organized uh, or company sanctioned um, protest that happened on, on no, because it, it brought people from all uh, backgrounds and all fields of work together to uh, to resist this and um you know with much of the uh, income of the south depending on salmon uh, the salmon industry 70,000 jobs estimated to be at risk uh the stakes were definitely high drew 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a, it, it's easy. As I said, at the, at the top of the, uh, top of the podcast, it's easy to be, um, cynical when, uh, companies, um, kind of roll out the idea of coastal jobs being at risk, uh, from some of these, um, uh, either draconian regulations or, or, um, however you want to, um, think of them. Um, but this, this definitely was something, something different. And, um, John Fiorillo, just is—is is there a sense from you what what may be different about what happened in Chile versus, let's say, um, some of the attempts to push back on the government in uh, in the Canadian salmon farming uh, industry or other regions? Yeah, if you contrast it with what's going on in BC and the government's efforts to. Uh, transition all the net pen farming to some other form, um, perhaps land-based or something like that. The contrast is really interesting. I think John pointed out, um, and I think this may be the main point, is that uh, the Chilean salmon farming sector is so critical to the south of the country uh, as far as jobs and the support they provide to the communities there, which I, I read a very impassioned um, LinkedIn um, comment on that, and it described those communities as forgotten and kind of left on their own until the salmon farming industry came in with not only jobs, but medical care and uh, all those other things that make a community. In BC, it's a much smaller sector to begin with um and you just you just uh, these are remote communities too but i just don't think they have the the cloud or it's as critical to bc as it appeared to be to chile so that's that's my quick take on it i i don't know if that's entirely accurate but it feels it feels like that to me yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that that's, um, you know, there there is significant job risk in BC, um, not just in direct employment, but in all the ancillary employment uh, in in the industry. And there's been a pretty well organized social media campaign, um, at least on this uh, on this issue. And our colleague Rachel Sapens covered it very very closely. Um, and in fact, there was a meeting today where more. Uh, more opposition and and more concern was expressed, not just by industry, but again, um, coastal communities and even First Nations. All the First Nations in BC are are very divided on whether or not they want salmon farms in their uh, in their territories. Um, however, there certainly are some that do want that for the same reasons because uh, of employment in these rural areas. And so it's it's something that I think um, I'm not sure that there is 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 a something to be learned um, from from Chile or if it's just as you said they're just very different sizes of of industries and um, you know um, very uh, you know very different different political landscapes but it was it was really remarkable um, and it does kind of show that. When there is organized opposition from the communities themselves um, that are are sort of 
fighting for these industries, it can make a, a massive difference regardless of the sector. What I yeah. find interesting, from sorry, uh, from Go a ahead, political Jeff. point of view, is that uh, Boric has come in, President Boric, coming as a socialist president, who you would think would want to protect jobs and promote uh, social welfare amongst the population. But uh, in trying to protect the environment, um, it, it, those two things seem to clash. Um, I think we've talked, spoken about that before, John. Yeah, I, 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 you, you mentioned that the other day when we were talking about uh, this, this story, and I found that, I found that really insightful and really interesting. And I think, I, I think that may have played a role here. Again, we're talking about communities that, you know, there aren't any other options. There's not, you know, high tech or any of that uh, gonna open up down there so and and this is you know this is consistent with norway and as we already said bc and and other salmon farming nations a lot of this happens in remote rural communities and they depend on this this isn't you know this isn't frivolous in any way this is their their lifeblood for not only jobs but so much more so i i mean it was it kind of blew my mind to see that many people um, protesting uh, on behalf of uh, the salmon industry, the farm salmon industry. And maybe that alone, the, the, just the optics of that was, was too much to, to be ignored uh, by the government. Okay, well, we're going to stick on salmon, but we're going to pivot over to wild salmon and move over to Alaska, which has been a hotbed of activity ahead of the 2023 season. Uh, Copper River season, it's you know touted as the first fishery of the year, first wild salmon fishery of the year. Um, that's gotten underway and all of its excitement has kind of come and gone. Prices drop down for that fish. They usually are, they go up into ridiculous levels in the beginning of the of the season and kind of taper off this year they went up to ridiculous levels like normal and really came down hard which um based on what we've been reporting about the alaska salmon industry and the alaska salmon season coming up which primarily the most important one uh is the bristol bay sockeye fishery when you look at Copper River, it can be sort of a um, canary in the coal mine for what's going to happen with Bristol Bay and the prices. And John, you've been hearing for several months, uh, and everyone that we've talked to has, uh, and that's many, many people, have said that there is going to be a significantly lower price offered to fishermen in Bristol Bay than last year. Um, some of the prices that have been mentioned have been very, very low. Um, some have been not as low, but they have all been uh, significantly lower than the uh, than the base price that was offered to salmon fishermen last year. So, John, just give us a sense of where we are and what might happen uh, as we sort of look down the barrel of these low prices and what it means for fishermen. Yeah, our colleague Rachel Sapin wrote a, a really, uh, a really in-depth story on it this week, and uh, I think 
the easiest way to sum it up is things are extremely tense, both on the fisherman side and the processor side. Um, where the price will land, nobody really knows yet, but keep in mind that last year the base price, and this is what it just what it sounds like. The fisherman's first price when they sell the fish to a processor it was a dollar 15. now there are incentives icing and other handling incentives that add to that dollar 15 maybe it depends how much maybe 10 cents maybe 25 cents it ranges on which incentives the fishermen participate in nevertheless the base price is kind of what we look at um again dollar 15 last year Ranges this year are as low as 40 cents, which I think is pretty low, and not much higher than 65 cents. So no matter how you slice it, it's going to be a massive haircut on the fishermen side. And fishermen hate to hear that, and they, uh, I forgot somebody told Rachel, I, I can't I can't think of that because I have to stay optimistic just so to go out and fish. And that's because it's it's a grueling Bristol Bay is a grueling fishery. You're up for days on end. All the fish come in in, in the space of eh, a week, give or take. And it's a massive 38 million fish this year, which is a lot smaller than the record last year. Still a lot of fish. Anyways, so they have to keep their um keep on their game, so to speak, or else, you know, they probably wouldn't go out there. Uh, so tough for fishermen, for sure. Uh, it, it, and it's tough for processors. I mean, uh, we, it's hard to get, it, it, you can easily get lost favoring one side or the other in this because both stories are compelling. But in this particular case, the processors too are struggling. They had a massive pack of fish last year. That fish slammed into a, a recession, basically a soft recession. Consumer demand for seafood ooh, just fell through the floor. They couldn't sell this stuff. They still can't sell this stuff. They still have hangover there. A lot of them said their pack's been sold. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Um, the, uh, the European market has all but disappeared, and no processor I've spoken with thinks it's coming back anytime too soon. Their financial crisis or their cost of living crisis, as they call it, is worse than ours, if you, if you can put that in perspective. So uh, they're hanging, you know, it costs a lot of money to hold this fish in cold storage, and they've been carrying that burden. And to the point where one of the big processors, Peter Pan, had to come out this this week and issue a letter to try and squash the rumors in the market that it was financially uh, in trouble. And they sent a note to their fleet uh, telling them, that, you know, they're not in trouble. They had to get a new uh, line of credit because the one they were using, the the credit extender decided uh, to get out of seafood is what they said. And, um, you know, so they're, they're indicative of some of the challenges that processors are facing this year. And it goes, it's all the processors. It's not just Peter Pan or Silver Bay. I mean, it's, it, they're all under a level of stress and 
duress. And we've been hearing too, and I think we've talked about, we've certainly written a lot about it, but I think we even talked about it on the podcast that there are companies that may not make it through this season, um, or at least not without maybe some significant restructuring. And and I think these prices that are being mess uh, that that are uh, being mentioned, um, they're. I think it does. If you extrapolate that those prices out, it does indicate that it's going to be really difficult to make money in Bristol Bay for salmon processors this year as well. So um, it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. We're we're also hitting in a time when, again, you mentioned John all that frozen fish from last year. Um, you know, you you could theoretically say, well, there's going to be a big spike in demand for wild salmon. There always is. You know, there's always a market and an appetite for wild salmon when uh, when summer rolls around. Um, and in theory, you think, well, maybe some of that frozen fish you could uh, actually present alongside it and offer consumers a little bit of a bargain um, and and move that fish. But it just doesn't feel like we're in that situation. And uh, I mean, the the latest retail statistics that uh, that came out um, that are that are compiled. I believe it's IRI, right? That that uh, provides that. Um, they really showed things going in the wrong direction, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, salmon has been, you know, uh, the the shining star at retails. We've said many times, and a lot of the a farm salmon. salmon. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say a lot of the salmon you see is farm salmon. I think on the wild side. The development that most people have been talking about is, and I can't remember how many weeks ago it was, but Costco brought um, was started selling. I guess you'd call it a promotion, but uh, started selling uh, last year Bristol Bay, you know, um, refreshed in uh, uh, you know uh, vacuum pack or whatever you call. Um, for nine ninety nine a pound, it's beautiful fish. It's a whole side, um, and at that price, you can get a whole side for. Uh, I think I told everybody before, like twelve bucks. My wife got it for. So, um, but what that did is, uh, which is odd to me. I've not seen this before. It reset the entire, almost the entire retail. Uh, pricing to 9.99 whether that be at Kroger or you know uh, any of the big any of the big chains and I think that really freaked people out because that's that's not a great price you know I mean it's not a, a wow we're making money price or anything like that so now the new product's going to come in uh, in a few weeks here uh what's that gonna come in at you know um 9.99 Ooh, i mean i i think if i remember my numbers right i mean it usually settles in at retail at about 13.99 after you know after the flood of fish kind of makes its way through so it's important everybody watch for that at wherever they shop and see what that Bristol Bay starts uh, retailing for because that'll tell you quite a bit. Nine ninety nine is probably not the number processors want to see. Yeah, 
Um, let, let's talk just a little bit about um, numbers that came out today because it's timely um, of the list of the, the most consumed species in uh, in America uh, released by the National Fisheries Institute. We have big problems with these with these numbers um, because they are so far behind. Um, however, <laughs> however, they are the most accurate, most uh, the best reference for what we know about U.S. seafood consumption, um, and and so this is a, a really really important. Um, uh, statistics. However, uh, the frustration is that we're looking, always looking back, and not just a little back, but really far back. And so, the numbers that were released today uh, discuss 2021 seafood consumption, and the story there um, is actually a very, a very good one. But drilling down, a, a kind of a one that you just hit on, John, um, when we were talking about salmon. So uh, seafood consumption rose about 7.9%. That's huge from 19 pounds per capita in 2020 to uh, 20.5 pounds per capita in 2021, which indicates that there has been a continued uptick since uh, since COVID uh, into, uh, into 2021. Um, and, uh, and, and the story is one really of aquaculture. Um, if we didn't know it before, the evidence just keeps piling up. Aquaculture is going to drive consumption, not only because of the volume, because there's not going to be volume in the future to meet everybody's appetite, but also just because consumers are turning towards this, this very thin, a small group of species and right there at the top now salmon is so far above uh anybody or sorry shrimp is so far above um any of the other species that i mean it's just leaving them absolutely in the dust with the exception of of uh salmon and by salmon i think it's more than fair to say that when we're looking at salmon looking at the growth that's coming from uh farm salmon and certainly the statistics from uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, when you look at the import statistics, indicate that that growth in consumption, that growth in, in imports is related to farm um, farm salmon rather than some new share of wild salmon. And we just got done saying and discussing that actually wild salmon has had a little, a little trouble moving on the, um, on the market. But, um, but it was, it was, uh, there was a lot of surprising statistics to me. I'll ask you, John, in a second what you uh, what you think. Um, I thought uh, I expected that canned tuna would come back down to earth after the pandemic, since there was a lot of sort of hoarding behavior, um, trying to stock up on um, goods that have long shelf lives. But the drop uh, was kind of stunning. Um, if we are to believe these statistics, and again, these are kind of the best that we have, uh, can tuna sales drop 47% uh, from 2020 through to the end of 2022, or sorry, to the end of 2021. That's just a monstrous drop. Um, and I, I don't see any, any way that that is going to be heading in a different direction. It just simply won't. Um, meanwhile, looking at the increase in shrimp and salmon, the, the really shocking thing is that shrimp consumption 
was almost an additional pound per person uh, per capita, per capita, sorry. Um, and in about a half pound change per capita for salmon. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It is, it is phenomenal. The, the growth that's happening there in, in shrimp and salmon consumption. Now, again, like I said, I think there's a lot of context of what's happened after, uh, 2021, because obviously last year was just, uh, seismic in terms of the changes that happened, Russia being the the, the biggest one, but, um, but John, what, what was your take on the statistics? Were you surprised, not surprised, anything jump out to you that you thought was unusual? Yeah, well, I mean, overall, I was delighted to see the numbers only because we've been reporting, uh, in the blind, in the dark, so to speak about, um, the, the massive sales that, uh, took took place in 2021. I, I mean, all the evidence out there suggested that was the case, and we were seeing uh, retail data to support that. But it's nice to see the the consumption numbers verify and back that up. Now, it would have been nice to have it last year instead of two years later, but you know that's Noah, and that's their problem. Um, some other things I, I noticed, you mentioned shrimp. And if you recall the reporting during 2021, and when we reported on what was going on at retail with seafood um, and what was going on with cooking seafood at home, and you think about that as the backdrop, Shrimp makes perfect sense that it grew so so much. One, it's it was fairly affordable. Two, it's easy to cook shrimp. You can put it in almost any recipe. Um, so these, you know, there was a lot of belief that people who never cooked seafood learned how during the pandemic. Well, you know, late 2020, most of 2021. And that makes sense to me because one of the easiest gateway seafoods, if you will, one of the easiest ways to get into seafood, if you're not really sure what to do, yeah, go get some shrimp, throw it in a shrimp taco, you know, throw it in pasta, throw it in anything. And it, it works. So the I, I I I too was surprised by the by the pound, but in retrospect, it makes total sense to me. The other thing that um, I didn't realize until I was asked by uh, Cla- uh, Clarice Owens, she's the uh, co-founder of Ocean Seafood Company. She asked me a little while ago on LinkedIn how much of the top ten list is represented by you know, sustainable seafood, for lack of a better word. And if we use a sustainable seafood to mean uh, seafood that's certified either by the MSC, uh, ASC, or BAP, uh, whether it be farmed or or wild, if you look at that, certainly um, a majority of it it can be labeled as certified, you know, eco-labeled seafood. If you just look at shrimp, salmon, and pollock, that's, I I did some quick math on it, that's 10 pounds of the 20 pounds of consumption. Mostly all of that, I would say, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Mostly all of that bears some sort of eco-label, whether it's farm-produced or wild. And then you throw in 
you know, some of the um, tilapia and some of the uh, pangasius and, and the other little guys down the road there. So it was an interesting question. It made me go do some quick math and check it out. But that that's uh, that shouldn't be forgotten in all this, I don't think. Mm. That is interesting, you know, because it's it's the the growth of those species. It is going to be more and more important that those species do have those certifications for retailers and food service companies. Um, and and like you said, most of them do. I mean, you're going to have a really hard time finding any kind of volumes of salmon that doesn't hold a certification, wild or farmed. Shrimp, I might argue that is a little bit trickier, but still significant volumes um, uh, as well. So it is a really interesting point that you're getting to the stage where it's, you really can't say that the majority of the species, the ones that um, are really growing that Americans are spending the most money on and are most kind of interested in purchasing. It's hard to say they're not, uh, you know, you can't really make the argument that there's a lot of at least uncertified um, uncertified fish, uh, um, among the top 10. So, yeah, now you have to, you know, the debate will be, well, just cause it has a label is it sustainable. I, I mean, we could go down that road a million times, but if you're just looking for some way to measure it, that, that to me is the most obvious way to do it. Agreed. Well, John, let's wrap it up there. Uh, We are going to be in New York City very, very soon, uh, this time next week for our Future of Seafood Forum. Uh, It is going to be a a gathering of some VIP executives. Uh, We'll have several panels um, talking about some really interesting topics, land-based aquaculture, offshore aquaculture, uh, other food security issues. Um, and, uh, and we will be reporting on that. So we'll have coverage of that, uh, as we get towards the, uh, towards the, uh, end of that week and into the next week. So, um, stay tuned. That's going to ha- uh, be really interesting event and, and, uh, some really interesting speakers there. And as a reminder, you can get our newsletters on Intrafish, uh, and sign up for, uh, whichever ones you want. We have a, a whole array of them, including John's weekly, uh, wave newsletter, which rounds up food service and retail trends. Um, and again, 24-7, we're at infrafish.com and rolling out news uh, around the clock from our bureaus in London, Norway, Asia, uh, Seattle, as well as our uh, reporters around the globe from, uh, from a lot of different places. So visit us there, sign up for our newsletter, uh, download our app. There's a lot of ways to get us. There's no excuse for not keeping up on your seafood news. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.